such a good time in the presence of the Lord and worship. Thank you, Lord. My youngest son was doing the camera over here. I'm so proud of him. He was taking that thing seriously like he was playing Xbox or something, man. Like, Josiah, I love you. My son recently transferred uh, from Finney to Churchville because he wanted to wrestle. And Finney, he didn't have that option there. And so it's his first year wrestling. And that kid is a beast, man. He's so strong because he's a Wexler. Come on, somebody. I might not look that strong, but grab this gun. You'll see. Come on, somebody. Anytime someone grabs my arm, I flex. <laughs> like, I'm not flexing. It's just like that. But Josiah, I have videos, of course, super proud dad. And uh, this has nothing to do with the message or anything. I'm just talking. But he, <laughs> he won his first official match in 32 seconds. He penned the kid in 32 seconds. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was dope. So I'm like, that's my boy. Get him, Joey. <laughs> but I keep telling him, I'm like, stay humble, son, and learn and listen and stay humble. Amen. All right. Isn't that the, the, the growth pattern for us, right? Just stay low, stay lowly. Amen. Let's open up our Bible. So if you already have your Bible open uh, to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to, this morning, because we're stepping into the joyous season of Christmas. Come on, somebody. Who's excited for the month? Who's already put their tree up? Ours was up like a month ago. Thanks, Rochelle. Um, it's like February, or it's like, you know, uh, three months before Christmas. And Rochelle's like, let's get the Christmas stuff out. I'm like, no. Um, but it is a, the, a joyous time of the year. And how many know what Christmas is all about? Uh, we know it is about Jesus, right? Can we say his name together? Jesus. Jesus. And today I want to talk to you about what is known in, in Christian theology as the incarnation. That is God becoming human in the person of Jesus Christ. God the Son, the Son of God, the Logos, the Word of God becoming flesh. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And we're going to talk about what that means for us and what, uh, what, how it connects with what we know as salvation. And, and there's a lot of things, I think, that in our Christian faith, we walk with the Lord, we can walk with the Lord for a long time, and... Uh, and it's a discovery of who he is and what he's done for us. And what I want to talk to you about today, um, we'll see where this goes, but where I want to talk to you about today is, is how that impacts us, like God becoming human. And I'm not just referring to the fact that Jesus died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. The incarnation and the resurrection are both vitally important for our salvation together. Can you say Amen the virgin womb to the empty tomb all the way to the throne room. It's all a part of our, the salvific work that we have been freely given. And I want to talk to you about salvation and grace because I think a lot of times we think salvation and grace is like, uh, like a gift, like, oh, here's, here's a, you know, some flowers. Here's a little basket of goodies for you and you know, enjoy them and don't misuse them. That's not salvation. Salvation is a person. His name is Jesus. 
And eternal life is not a created grace. Eternal life is God himself including you and bringing you back into communion with himself. Jesus even said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, to know the Father and to know the Son. To know the Father and to also know Jesus, his Son. Salvation and eternal life, all these words that we throw around in our Christian faith can be summed up in God becoming human and what he did, who he is and what he did for all of humanity. Can you say amen? And so we're going to look at the, the verse in Philippians where Paul talks about Jesus, uh, you know, it says that he emptied himself. How many know the term that he emptied himself? What does that mean? What does it mean to empty himself, that God, um, the Son, emptied himself? And so let's just start reading. I love how this is connected. We're going to start in the very first verse. I love how this is connected to community. I love how this is connected to Paul encouraging and admonishing. How many are thankful for admonishment? There's one person that raised their hand. All right. How many hate raising their hand when the pastor asks a question? <laughs> I got two hands that time. Wow. You guys are so lazy. Give me a break. You lifted your hands all throughout worship, but I ask you one question. It's Christmas. Just give me the gift of lifting your hand, okay? Just one, please. I'm not asking you to worship me. I'm just asking a question. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, though, like, to our orphanness, our fallen humanity, our imperfection, our brokenness, the things in us, correction feels like rejection. But correction is love in its fullness. Like if I didn't correct my kids, Sarah, they would be a mess. They would not be leading you in worship on Sunday. <laughs> Are you thankful for admonishment? When we read the scripture, we can't just think like, oh, I just want the scripture to pat me on the back, you know? No, the scripture is a sword that goes in where we say, what must we do? <laughs> it, it, we're cut to the heart. The beautiful thing about the word of God that's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, and is able to divide asunder to the core of our being is when the sword comes out, it comes out healing. It's not a correction that leads us into a place where we feel guilty and condemned, but it's a correction that leads us into a place where we're ready to fly. Thank you. I dream of, in my own life too, of a people of God that love correction. And this is what Solomon said. If you hate correction, you're... Stupid. That's what the Bible, hey, I'm just, it's just the Bible. She's quoting. She wasn't telling me I'm stupid. If you hate correction, you're stupid. That's what it says. But if you love discipline, you love knowledge, you love, you're, you're, you're not afraid to be admonished. And Paul, he is encouraging the church and connecting the reality of the incarnation with community, but in interlaced in this meal, if you will, if you will, is a, a nice 
in this cheeseburger, the patty is correction. And it's okay, like we, we should be challenged. If you're not challenged, what's the point? A lot of people love churches that don't challenge them. That's why sometimes, and I, I'm not shaming mega churches at all, but sometimes like fast growing mega churches are very shallow because it's comfortable and it's easy to come in and punch in our spiritual time clock. Come on, somebody. With no challenge, with no like, what am I created to do? Where am I called to go? Where do I fit? If you feel like you don't know where you fit, you're probably in a good place because you're actually being challenged to fit where God wants you, not where you think you should go. And something happens inside of us where we're like, "Ah, I'm a little uncomfortable. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. I think, you know, especially the church in America, we could use some uncomfortability, you know? I remember years ago, my kids, um, I'm just rambling, forgive me. Um, My kids, you know, they would like fight over a toy or something. And then I would tell them the story on the mission field of uh, these kids playing with pieces of paper. And it was white on one side and colored on the other. And they were so happy playing with a piece of paper that was just cut up. And uh, and they've heard the story a dozen times. Sarah, am I right? How many times have you heard that story? But then she got to go to the mission field. And she got to go to Mexico multiple times to an orphanage and serve and love. And her heart was changed. And all my kids got to go. Their hearts were changed. Then we all got to go to the Philippines. Something happens when you get uncomfortable and you don't think about yourself, but you just become other-centered. And so many times we're just, and that's the challenge is are we, hear me, are we living out incarnational life as the body of Christ. And so as we dive into the understanding of the incarnation, God becoming human, and he didn't just become human like, oh, God's human, that's great. No, he became the humanity that's fallen and trapped in darkness without, yet without sin. Jesus, the Bible says the word became flesh. The word flesh is sarks. And it's, it's the same word that you could read in other places where it's Paul's referring to flesh, like the broken, uh, the broken fallenness of mankind. How many of Jesus was tempted like us, but yet without sin, he was the sinless, spotless lamb, but he took on our broken humanity. He came inside all of that's what's broken, yet without compromising who he is. And he never stopped being who he is. And, and so God the Son became human f- for us so that we could be joined back together with him. So let's read the admonishing part, and then we're going to jump down. The admonishing part starts in verse 1. Are you all there? That was my introduction. My preacher clock has not started yet, but it starts now. Now I'm messing. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I love the heart of the apostle who's like a papa that says, I want to see my spiritual kids, I want to see the church get along. It's always the, uh, an expression of the heart of our Father in heaven that wants 
unity, that wants connection. And so he goes on, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interests of others. And then he dives in to the humility of the God-man, Jesus, that Jesus emptied himself. I want to read this same portion here in the message. I, I love it in the message. It's got a good message when you read it in the message. Let me find it here. So I'm just going to read those few verses. This is, this is powerful. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, sounds a little harsh already, right? Let's keep reading. If you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Wow. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting to your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Wow. Isn't that good? Was anyone else convicted but me? So then Paul begins to... Now let me go back to New King James technology. You guys okay with the New King James? I don't care if you are or if you're not, actually. I read from multiple versions. Here's what he says in verse 5. Are you all with me? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and, given, and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Wow. Right after this is where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but don't stop there. It says, for it's God who works in you, both who will and to do for his good pleasure. Sometimes our religiosity likes to stop at verses because it, it creates a place in us where we're, it's, it's up to us, you know. It's, no, it's not up to you. Um, God does the work. Amen. So this understanding of God becoming human. You know, the ancient church, the church father said that it, what, Jesus, obviously, this was, you know, the first few centuries of the church where who is Jesus, right? And the understanding of the Trinity. How many know this is an essential part of understanding who God is? Like God is not a monad or singular divine being. God is not a solitary divine being. Another, God is not one person. God is one essence, 
revealed in three distinct persons. The Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, the Spirit's not the Son. Hello? And, you know, we have a lot of analogies to try to communicate the Trinity, and a lot of them in the Western church are actually heretical and would actually line up with Molinism and all these early church heresies. Understanding the Trinity is actually very important. Because it describes the God who's not like the God of monotheistic religions that we know, like Islam, where maybe Allah in one sense can be loving, but Allah is not love. How many know that Allah is not a real God, but rather doctrine of demons? Or the God of even Judaism, like obviously through the Old Testament we read, I believe that the, the Old Testament begins to reveal the triune God, and then you see it in the Gospels when Jesus is baptized in water, and you see the voice of the Father, the Son coming out of the water, and the Spirit between the Father and the Son uh, in the form of a dove descending and resting and remaining upon him. I love that, resting and remaining. That's my prayer sometimes. Lord, rest on my life and teach me to walk in a way where you remain resting on my life so I can live out incarnational life and love to others. Lord knows I don't sometimes, though, but yeah. And Lord knows you don't, too. So So what is this understanding of God? So God is not this singular being like Allah or or any other monotheistic religion. Um, How many know that God is three persons, or three persons, one divine substance, this is how early Christianity would, would understand that God can be love in his essence. Love, hear me, is not something that God does. Love is who God is. And love was manifested in the incarnation so that we could be brought into this relationship. You see, salvation is not some created thing that God hands you. It is himself so that you can be in communion with him. Eternal life is not some gift so that you can live forever. It is the privilege and the honor that you could be in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in all eternity. Now, here's the catch, though. When we talk about Jesus emptying himself. Jesus did not empty himself of his divine nature. He emptied, in one way you could put it, he emptied himself of his divine privilege. But the language in the Greek, the Greek word kenosis is more like that God's divine nature of love, that he is love in his essence, because love necessitates relationship. You can't have love unless there's another person to love and reciprocate that love. And in the doctrine of the Trinity, you don't have a God existing by himself before creation. You have a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit existing in sweet union, love, fellowship, joy, all together. And, and the incarnation is God the Son manifesting the reality of that love by emptying himself. Obviously, you know, it says he humbled himself. But emptying himself is not, and this is what the early church believed, that God didn't actually humble himself in a way where, you know, it's like, well, the Father's exalted up there, the Spirit's exalted, but God the Son decided to just live in the slums, like dress up like a homeless guy for a little while. 
That's not the idea that Paul's communicating. Rather, the idea that Paul's communicating is that he emptied himself. He poured out his divine love on broken humanity by becoming human. Like God wanted to touch our broken humanity. I'm, I'm reminded of, I, I've been diving into this thing and I, I've got to go back to it in, in Exodus chapter three because I feel like it, it's, it's all pointing to the incarnation. Uh, in fact, Israel, the, the old covenant, Israel, God's people, was the womb of the incarnation. You didn't quite see exactly what was happening, but something was being formed and shaped in the unseen realm and then Jesus manifests and reveals to us what God looks like. See, the problem is we already have an idea of God. We already have the, the G-O-D, right? What is the G-O-D? What was the G-O-D before you became a Christian? What was the G-O-D? Who is the G-O-D to you now? Is the G-O-D to you the revelation that you see in Christ through the scriptures? We have an idea of a G-O-D, and it's usually this Greek concept of God that's all controlling, right? As a matter of fact, it's this, this idea that everything that happens in your life is God's will, that's not the God of the Bible. Sorry, I hate to spoil it for you if it's a spoiler, but that's not the God of the Bible. Where somebody, you know, like, Lord have mercy, somebody, one of our loved ones passes on and somebody walks up and says, well, the Lord must have needed another angel in heaven. Well, that's not the Bible. Or like, well, you know, God took him for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. No, actually, not everything happens for a freaking reason. When you stub your toe in the middle of the night, there's no reason other than turn the light on or get a nightlight, right? I got a flat tire. Well, the Lord works in mysterious ways. No, the mystery's over. The mystery in the Bible is mystery revealed, not mystery concealed. The mystery in the Bible is not banging our head against the wall in a dark room. Rather, it's looking into the glory of a sun that's so bright that we can't look right into it, but it lights up a world around us where we discover the greatness of who God is and what he does in the earth. It's not this idea that like, oh man, you know, God must have took... No, God, didn't, death, God did not create death. Death is the result of fallen humanity turning away, catch this, from communion with God. Not a juridical, well, you disobey the law of God, so God, the punishing judge, is going to punish you. He can't wait to punish you. That's the G-O-D of Greek philosophy and paganism. We're so quick to talk about, oh, the Christmas tree is so pagan, yet we still believe God is this wrathful, two-faced, Janus-faced God. Hello, somebody. If you're going to get the paganism out of Christianity, make sure you actually get it out of the way you see God before you start pointing your finger about how Halloween is so demonic and all this stuff. Oh, my church does a harvest fest, but I won't attend. Oh, get over yourself. Like, all right, I don't want to rant and get in a bad mood. Like, honestly, though, like, oh, you know, the Christmas tree was pagan religion. And we have all these silly nonsense things. You know, the name Jesus actually comes from Zeus in the Greek. No, it doesn't. Study a little bit more. You'll figure it out. We're like, oh, that's pagan. Oh, the altar's pagan. Oh, it's Roman order and Constantine and blah, blah, blah. You know what's pagan? A lot of Christians' understanding of who God is. Who's the G-O-D? See, we start with the G-O-D and then add Jesus to it. He's a little nicer. Well, at least 
The son is nicer, but the father, don't mess with them, bro. <laughs> Lightning. <laughs> you see, the, the, the trick is, is, I shouldn't use that word, but what we need to do is start with Jesus. Just throw the G-O-D out. Look at him. He's the expressed image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And we are complete in him who's the head of principality and power. He is the manifestation, the revelation, the perfect revelation of what God looks like. And he showed us by becoming human and ate with us and ate good Middle Eastern food, whatever they ate in the first century. Kind of like the food I had last night at this Thai restaurant. Oh my goodness. I should give the, the restaurant a shout out. Yeah. What's the name of it again? Lenore's. Oh. <laughs> that restaurant has a piece of my heart. And that hole in my heart will only be filled if, unless I go there. We went there with Brandon and Val, and we had appetizers. And then we went to another amazing restaurant across the street. So this is the first time we've actually sat and ate. It was my son David's idea. He's like, I made reservations at the chef's counter. Don't worry, this goes with the message if you're wondering. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not. Who cares? And we're eating this food. And I'm like, King James, Psalm 103, the Lord satisfies my mouth with good things. <laughs> at one point, I looked over at David. and David's like, I'm overstimulated. I can't try another dish. I can't try anything. I'm just overstimulated right now. <laughs> I'll never forget one, this one time I'm eating food. And the sister in the Lord's like, you know, I notice you really enjoy your food. I'm like, yeah. And I'm thinking, is this a setup? Like, are you going to say you need to go on a diet or something, right? She's like, it's a sign of intelligence when people really enjoy their food. I'm like, yes, and amen. Come on, somebody. Take another bite. Mm. How, how many know that Jesus, though, became fully human? Like, he actually had human bodily functions. Pastor, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. We're not Gnostics. Gnosticism denies the incarnation. He was fully human. And not just to be human and die on the cross. He wasn't just this exceptional human being with the great teachings and that will transform the world in the realms of social justice. No, he's God becoming human so that we could be saved. And this is the emptying. This is the, the message that Paul's conveying. Jesus emptied himself, not of his divinity, but rather poured out his divine love through the incarnation. Coming right in the midst of our brokenness. In Exodus chapter 3, we see the famous story of Moses tending the flock. And he came to the mountain of God. And it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame from the midst of the bush. How many know that many times in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is who? Jesus. It's called a Christophany, where Jesus manifests in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's in conjunction with angelic activity. But in this case, how many know he wasn't just talking to an angel, he was talking to Yahweh. We see it in chapter 6, the first time... 
the term Yahweh is mentioned uh, in the Old Testament just shortly after this. But Moses saw a bush that was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then verse 3 of Exodus 3. I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. When the Lord saw, he turned aside to look. God called him. See, sometimes we're waiting for God to speak, but we haven't turned aside. The Bible says he turned aside, and then the Lord's like, okay, and he called him. The orientation of our hearts is so important in relation to hearing the voice of the Lord. Amen. Has nothing to do with the message, but I, I just like that. So, And the Lord called him, said, here am I. And Moses said, uh, here am I. He said, don't draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. At that point, God continued to speak, and Moses was like hiding his face. You know, it, I find it interesting, though, the, the whole concept of Moses, like, take off your sandals. The Lord says, you're on holy ground. Why did he take off his sandals? Was it a sign of reverence and submission? That sounds about right. Yeah? It's not a trick question. Uh, was it a sign of, like, I love this, that in the Near East, you don't wear sandals in your home. Was it a, a, a moment where it's like, you're home now, Moses? I love that. But I think it was something else. I think that there's a message here where God wanted to touch the brokenness of Moses in this encounter. And this is what we see in the incarnation. Well, what do you mean? Why did Moses have to take off his sandals? Well, one way to look at it is servants don't wear sandals. Well, then why would, why would God rub that in Moses' face like you're just a servant? It's kind of not really the message of the New Covenant, which, by the way, the New Testament is the explanation of the Old Testament. So we know that we're sons and daughters. Well, why is that something to even communicate then? Because how many know Moses had some orphan wounds? His mom, in, you know, for the purpose of save his life, put him in a little basket put him in the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter found him and took him to himself, but then got mama to nurse him. But he was not raised by his mom. He was raised by another woman that loved him, but he did not have the affection of his biological mother. How many know there's a lot of other things in the life of Moses, like there's orphan wounds. It's a picture of fallen humanity. We all don't know the love of God, the tender affection of our Abba, right? To its full extent, we'll never know until I think we'll probably be discovering the love of Abba for all eternity. But why would God say, I'm going to remind you, I, I, like, take off your sandals? Because servants 
don't wear sandals. Almost like he was saying, no, you're just, you, you know, you need to, you need to understand who you are. I'm putting you in your place. Here's why I believe God, and I've never, I've never taught this. I've never heard it until recently. I was diving in. God wanted Moses to remember the wounds that he carried so God could touch them and heal them. This is what we see in the incarnation, God becoming human, joining to our broken humanity. Wow. Holy ground. This is why wherever, hear me, wherever we see the activity of God, that ground becomes holy. Because it's God's burning bush to burn away whatever is not of love's kind. So in the incarnation, he's burning away what is not of love's kind in our broken humanity. And knowing him is eternal life. In fact, which I don't have time to dive into this direction in the message, but in fact... Knowing one another is eternal life. That one's tough. Because even the people we don't like that are genuinely saved believers, they are family to us forever. And you might not get along with them now, but you better start because God might put their mansion next to yours in heaven. Where the person you don't want to see is going to be like, yo, what's up? We're going to the throne room to worship this morning. Come on, somebody. (laughs) Wait, this morning. There's no day or night in heaven. So I don't know, eternity. I don't know how that works. But Paul is saying like, if you understand what Jesus did to reveal who God is to us in his loneliness, his humility, his love, then you would understand how we should orient our lives towards one another. In fact, This is what the church has always believed, that the body of Christ is an extension of the incarnation. Wow. You and I together are an extension of God becoming human to a broken world. That is good. Tweet it or something. God wants our hearts to burn God wants to ignite our hearts again and, and get us to a place where we would just wonder at what the incarnation actually is, the mystery of God becoming human, fully divine, fully human in the person of Jesus Christ, and know that your salvation is not just some gift of some things that God made up for you a basket of goodies. Here's a little grace and here's a little mercy and here's the blood. No, rather it is an uncreated reality. Salvation is him. This is why Peter says we partake of divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We partake of salvation is an invitation to partake of divine nature. And that was all because of the incarnation. As we step into the Christmas season, Let's be in wonder of him so that we can wonder what it looks like to live that out to broken humanity wherever we go. So on the 23rd, when we're doing an outreach in the city, 
I'm the hands and feet of Jesus to every person that I talk to, that I pray for, that I love. And wrapping the gifts is an important part, which we need your help doing that. So when we do a post for a time, please help us. That's incarnational. We are, we are in fact, loving people right where they're at. Come on, somebody. And just revealing God's love to them. Amen. Let me pray for you and dismiss you. I'm going to close with this uh, prayer of Paul in Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You know what that tells me? That we're all one family. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power together with all the Lord's people. I love that part. Together with all the Lord's people the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. See, God wants us to wonder and discover his love in the incarnation all together. This is why today in worship, it was holy. How many could just sense that it was very holy? Can we lift our hands to the Lord right now and just thank him for his presence? You're so holy. And we want to posture our hearts where we stay in wonder and continue in wonder. We look to Jesus and we see the revelation of who God is. And the heart of the Father is revealed. And we need you, Lord. We need your presence. And as we all together, all together, remain in wonder of you. You reveal to us how wide, how long, how high, how deep that the love of Christ is. Keep your hands raised, just eyes closed. Paul says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see, the love that is revealed to us surpasses knowledge of the Bible. The verses you have memorized. It's an experiential thing. It's an encounter. I love where Jesus, matter of fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it real quick. And this is, this is an admonishment to all of us. It's, it's that understanding of correction that's healthy. Jesus is preaching, teaching in John chapter 5. And in verse 38 and 39, he says, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you missed the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Have we settled for knowledge sometimes instead of an encounter with him and his love? 
so when we read the scripture diligently, it should all point to him and reveal him to us. Paul closes it out. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than, I almost couldn't say that word, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that as we come even in this moment all together that you would remove any veil that you would heal our eyes so that we could behold you and the beauty of God the son becoming human coming right inside everything that's broken and yet not ceasing to be who you are you came to heal and free and reconcile us to our Abba, that we could live face to face, that you would grant us. He said, I want to give you the glory that I've had with the Father before time began. That glory is not something created. It's an eternal reality that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit have lived face to face. And we're invited in that. And so we come with humility and honor. Teach us to be humble. Because when Jesus, when you humbled yourself, when you revealed your love becoming human, you weren't, it's not like Jesus, hear me, it's not like Jesus is the only one that's humble in the Godhead. He actually revealed that the Father is also humble and the Spirit's also humble. And he didn't just become humble because there was an opportunity to be highly exalted. That's not why we humble ourselves, not for opportunities. We humble ourselves because it's our nature to love, to be foot washers. Teach us to be an extension of the incarnation towards one another and the world around. Grip our hearts. And Lord, I pray right now for any person in this room that doesn't know love or feel your love or has experienced the reality that they are so loved by you that they cannot escape it, Lord, that you are surrounding them even in this moment. I pray that your love would just burn, would just surround them and would just be like a blanket of peace over them. And that you, right now, God, I pray that oppression and confusion and, and turmoil and depression would be lifted off the hearts and minds. I even pray, Lord, right now for the young people, Lord. I pray, for every young person in this room, that they would encounter your love. I love what Julius' son said when he was baptized. I said, what has God called you to do? He said, I'm called to be a revelation to this generation. Lord, Lord, we're called to be a revelation of love to this generation. Teach us to be a revelation to this generation. And I pray for every young person and, and every heart and life in this room that they would encounter your love in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.
If there's anyone in this room that you can just sense the Father pouring in healing oil and and maybe in this moment, God's reminding you, you need to take off your proverbial sandal. He wants the wound to be exposed. He wants you to come into the light because He wants to heal it. He wants to remind you. He wants the sacredness, the, the, the brokenness of your soul to become holy ground, but you have to invite the activity of God. If you're in this place and you're just like, I just sense the, the love of God flowing and pouring into me right now with every head bowed, come on, and hands lifted, with eyes closed, would you just right now in this room, just stand up right where you're at and say, I want the love of God to permeate every fabric of my mind and my heart and my soul. Maybe you're a saint that's been in this room and maybe you've been a part of this church or you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're like, I want to be an extension of the incarnate love of Jesus, the humble love, the lowly love, the submissive love, the foot washing love. Come on, just stand up right where you're at and say, that's me. I need the love of God. I need to represent, I need to represent who Jesus is in the world and in the earth and to one another.